podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Questo suono dal Sud America fino giù in Senegal, profumo d'Africa nella Nuova Guinea. La sentirai in Albania, che assomiglia a casa mia, riparte dal Belgio, arriva in Croazia, Slovacchia, Polonia e Romania. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Worldwide Series. This is a series all about our fans. I'm convinced we have the best fans in the world. So I wanted to give our fans all over the world a platform where they can tell their stories and together we can continue to grow this amazing community. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. We're heading sort of to London for today's episode. I'll explain what that means, uh, or our, our guest will explain what that means in a moment. But today's episode is brought to you, of course, by Betstamp, the world's first verified buy-sell marketplace for sports betting picks. As I said, I introduced our guest as Hilling from London, but he's done his fair share of traveling over the years. Lorenzo Adamo, welcome to Forza Napoli. Hi, Joe. It's, it's lovely to, to finally be on. I'm a big fan of the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. And you're right, we've been chatting for a little while, so... Unfortunately, these episodes are, are pretty popular and a lot of people want to tell their stories, which is fantastic. Um, but that also means it takes a while sometimes for me to get to everyone. So we are going to spend most of this episode, I would say, reviewing the match against Empoli on Tuesday. We're also going to talk, uh, just quickly preview the final match of 2022, which is against Udinese on Saturday. But we always start these episodes with our guest story. So Lorenzo, it's probably a weird question to ask you, but how did you become an Apple fan? I was born into this, Joe. So I, whilst my accent may not confer this, I am born and raised in Napoli. I, I was born in Napoli in 1995 and I lived in Napoli for the first five years of my life. Then I moved to London with my family and I moved back to Naples in 2008 and I was in Naples again until 2015 when I then moved back to the UK to study at university but being a, a Napoli fan is very much within my blood so um, my dad was part of the ultras during the the 90s and he was one of the very lucky few who who got to see us win our Scudetti and you know I think as most people in Naples there are unfortunately some horrible people who support Juventus and other teams, but as most people in Naples inevitably have, I had the fire like burn inside me from when I was a very young kid, and and I was pretty unlucky at the start of my like you know <laughs> I I saw Napoli in Serie B when I was very young. Yeah, you know, I, I remember going to watch a game where we lost six one to the Gina, which is like, brutal in the early two thousands. Then I obviously saw our, our bankruptcy and failure, and then I saw Napoli soccer which was, you know, the, the incredible dynamic that was in 2004. And then I've been extremely lucky ever since because we're probably in, well, bar obviously the two years that we won the Scudetti, we're probably in the best period of our history in the, in the last 10 years. And yeah, it's it's been an interesting ride being a, I, I don't want to find myself a real Napoli fan, but being a, a fan of Napoli who is like born and raised in Naples to become a, an expat and then to have to live the life of a, a Napoli fan abroad, it's been a very interesting ride. And I've actually really enjoyed the the transition. You know, I've got to meet 
loads of fantastic people. I've got to listen to content in in English for Napoli fans that is very much, I think, probably the it's the biggest gap that our actual club has. And we were discussing this earlier. And so it's it's great to actually be involved in something like this. And I'd love to become a, a regular feature, especially as, as I come to move out to the States next year, to become a regular feature in, in your meet and the, the society that you guys have created, because I think it's a fantastic offering. You know, I'd be curious to know your opinion on the difference in how fans support their club, specifically Napoli, when you live there, obviously being a local and it's sort of, as you said, it's the fabric of being mm-hmm. Napolitano versus someone like me who's on the other side of the world and doesn't have access to the stadium that often. And as you said, we have to sort of, we created these communities, whether mm-hmm. it's Napoli Club Toronto here or the Tri-State Napoli Club in New York, where you're actually recording from at the moment and mm-hmm. and we'll be moving back to. So, you know, can you talk a little bit about that dynamic? And, and you can also touch on what we chatted about earlier, which is why fans view De Laurentiis a little bit differently there compared to outside of Napoli. Absolutely. So, so firstly, you're, you're completely right. There are two very different fan bases. The fan base that is born and raised a Napoli fan in Naples is very much a fan base that has been tormented through its existence because we've never really been a particularly successful club. And we've had to put up with that, uh, as do many other clubs, right? Because there, there are only a few winners, especially in, in our country, in, in Italy, there's only really ever three, you know, a couple spread out over time, but you kind of put up with the idea that you're not there to win, you're there to, to take part. And so our support is actually stemming almost exclusively off of passion. You know, we're not, we're not glory hunters. We don't support the team that wins or, you know, recently over the last few years, we have started to win a couple of trophies and, and compete at the highest level. But if you speak to like my grandfather, God rest his soul, he, within 75 years of his life, he saw Napoli win six trophies, but he went to the stadium every game of his life from when he was like 14 years old. So that's 60 years of, of real passion for very little in return in terms of results, but an incredible amount in terms of fervor and in terms of grinta, which is the term that is most useful in Italian. I'd say that the difference between fan bases when you're not sort of based in in Naples is that you're not, you're lucky to be abject from the politics that comes up with being a a Napoli fan in particular, because our president is a extremely outspoken and quite controversial figure. And, you know, it's not easy when someone completely dejects and throws shade on an enormous history, regardless of how trophyless it may be, a history that is incredibly important to Napoli fans. And when we're told, you know, I bought you and you had nothing and, you know, I, I had to buy the footballs and you know, this is the best period of the history of Napoli. And if I leave, God knows what will occur. All these types of things and problems with the stadium. You know, almost like we have to be grateful that finally the fourth biggest city in Italy and and most importantly, the warmest fan base in in Italy, and and that's, you know, stated fact, the warmest fan base in Italy 
has finally got some sort of recognition in terms of like playing field results. It's, it's crazy. But what I, I do enjoy, and, and actually you pointed that out, Joe, is that fans outside of Naples have managed to create communities where you try your best to replicate what it means to actually be a fan and go to the stadium. As you said, when I'm here, at least, I, I go and watch the games at the Ribalta uh, Vizzeria, which is the home of the Napoli club. But I really enjoyed, whilst watching the, the game against Atalanta, the fact that you're basically replicating, they were, they were basically replicating what Raul Desbelbellini does when, when we score and, you know, shouting out the name and then everyone would repeat it. I, I find that fantastic. And to be honest with you, that enthusiasm actually gives me quite a positive outlook on what things could be like if one day the Laurentiis does sell. And, you know, if we were so lucky that a Saudi investor or like, you know, an Emirati investor was to come to Naples and fall in love with, with the sea and, and, you know, Vesuvius and, and just, I think just give us the respect that we deserve in terms of fan base and in terms of importance historically as a place. Like, I feel like sometimes the Laurentiis forgets. And, you know, he's from Rome, so we don't expect him to, to understand and to feel the same way that we do about our city and about our team. But sometimes he actually forgets how important Naples is historically and how much the Napoli football team means to Neapolitans. Uh, I was saying to you before, you go to Napoli, uh, you go to Naples on a Monday when Napoli have lost the day before, you can literally walk around and hear crickets in the street. Or, or even worse, you, you really hear the fervent complaints and, and the moaning. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a distinct culture between the two fan bases. But I think we're extremely grateful, you know, us like homegrown fans, we're extremely grateful for how much of the following we've accrued over the years from obviously here it's a no-brainer right in the us and canada because of how many napolitans live here it's a no-brainer that there are these groups and these hubs that are our big fan bases but to have fans in in seoul korea or in you know abuja nigeria or or in turkey in macedonia i, I was in i was in macedonia a couple of years ago for a project and it was just, it was when Pandev had just left Napoli. And I was just walking the streets and, and listening to the game on my phone whilst walking. And I remember like, you know, saying, yes, when we scored. And like someone tapped me on the shoulder and was like, are you watching the Napoli game? This was a, like a, a normal, like Macedonian person. And I was like, yeah, like, how do you know? He was like, oh, I'm watching too. He's like, why? He's like, oh yeah, we're like, we're all really big Napoli fans because of, because of Panda, but now I know that Elmas has carried that tradition on. So, yeah, it's, it's just phenomenal to see. And sometimes, actually, the Neapolitan fans that are based in Naples don't know it. Obviously, I travel, so I get to see it a lot. But I've told stories to friends, and they couldn't believe it. Like, I've had to send them videos of the of the shouting uh, of the name because it's it is really unheard of elsewhere. I've been, yeah, I've been to watch games. Unfortunately, like the Juventus club in London. Trust me, the atmosphere is nowhere near the same. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's the same thing with the Juve clubs here. What is interesting, though, is I find that whenever I see videos of people who are not from Napoli going to the Maradona to watch matches, it seems like the locals are, are very, very welcoming to anyone who's coming. It's almost like you're treated even better if they find out that you're from another country that you came to their city to watch a match. <laughs> Agreed. 
Agreed. And actually, yeah, it's, it's actually quite funny because I'm sure you've seen the flocking of Georgian fans that have been going to the stadium, right, to watch Quara and I mean, that's completely understandable for two reasons, right? Naples is a gorgeous city, so it's a beautiful place to like just go and visit. And also, they have a reason now with their talisman to come and watch the games. But you know, Georgia is really far from Naples. Like these guys are literally like setting off on a pilgrimage, basically, to come watch Napoli play. And and the way that they've absorbed themselves into the the culture and 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 the way that they've put themselves at ease through also the, the help of the of the fans in the stadium for me it's it's amazing i haven't yet been to watch a game this season just because i haven't literally been back home since um the season started but you know i think so i'm going to watch the juventus game in january and i think walking in and knowing that the atmosphere is going to be so immersive and inclusive as well because of all these new fans that have popped up we're not like many other fan bases in the sense that we don't like we don't like fans who are opportunistic we don't like glory hunters there's a group of ultras that literally has a big banner in the stadium that says no allocacionale like you know that they don't want people who only just come to the big games but they love the fact that like these like georgian guys and like you know the korean fans are coming to watch Napoli because they feel as if like they are real fans. You know, it may be because of Quara that they start to watch, but then they get really passionate. Like I've listened to, I listened to a, an excerpt of a, an interview on Georgian TV from the one of the presenters that comments on the Napoli games. The guy, I mean, like he was rattling off. I was only reading the, the English subtitles, but he was rattling off like very passionately about a couple of like moments in the Roma game where we should have scored but didn't, and like what we could have done better. And I thought, I thought it was incredible to to see and to realize that how far we've come as a team recently especially yeah and we've seen the videos in georgia where they have they're showing the matches in parks on big screens and movie theaters like that whole country is bought in same with korea you know there's one fan you've probably come across his name is seba a korean uh, fan named seba. Yeah. He speaks italian and you know he's super passionate and people love him and you know you talk about trekking from georgia trekking from korea is probably even <laughs> even further right or or from from other places so yeah i think that's all growing you know of course when a team is doing well you are going to have the occasionals that show up like that's how you fill the stadium i mean right now when you go to that Juve match it'll be sold out the lower yeah. bowl will be packed i mean i guess it's still good for the club and you know i can appreciate that perspective from the ultras as well because there's probably a feeling of you know, we've been supporting through thick and thin, right? Even when we went bankrupt and had to come back up, we've been here. So there's probably a, a feeling like, you know, they've given more to the club a little bit, which is understandable, I think. You know, I, Joe, I, how long have you been following Napoli? Seriously, I would say probably in the mid to late 2000s. I mean, again, my father's from Avellino, so he's yeah. always been an Apple supporter. But, you know, as, as a kid, it wasn't as accessible over here as it is, it is now, yeah. right? So I would say probably from when, right around when Napoli came back to Sedia, that's when it, it became more serious. Yeah. So I was going to say, well, actually, so you, your, your dad's from, from Avellino. Like, you know, the first year after our bankruptcy, we got to the finals of the playoffs in Serie Ciuna, 
and we actually lost to Avelino and I was nine years old at the time and there were 58,000 fans in the stadium to watch us lose a third division game like I I kid you not and this is you know I, I'm, I'm saying this in the most unbiased way that I can but I'm obviously heavily biased you know the the photo that like is is very popular of the of La Curva B where the seats spell out Tiamo. That was done against Giulianova in 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 Serie C. Like like we actually love our club. Like we love Napoli. Like because Napoli represents it represents societal revenge against the powers that be that that withdrew us from what was a, a very tranquil and, and you know you know bustling society like you know the kingdom of the two sicilies of which napoli was the capital of was one of the most efficient and best performing nation states in the world and you know following the the, the unification of italy we were robbed of all of that and and napoli still acts you know 150 years later obviously 90 years old as a club still acts as that kind of defense mechanism and that's why I was saying to you before, whilst we do have rivalries with some other clubs from the South, I think except maybe Bali fans and except maybe Avellino fans, actually, I'd say most other sort of Southern contingents. I can definitely speak for Benevento, Catania, Palermo, because I've been sat with fans from those teams with their shirts on in our, in our supporters' end at games. So, so I know that they definitely would vouch. But also Crotone... Catanzaro, you know, teams from Calabria are 100% also of that same view that if we can rally behind one of ours, like is the, the way that they view it, then we'd love for that to be the case. And I remember when Catania were in Serie A, like I went to watch a game that we won 3-1 and when Mascara actually then came to Napoli, all of their, like all of their supporters, they gave him a, a guard of honor and they were like, you had to go anywhere else we're really happy that you went to Napoli because there was big talk of him going to Juventus before and, and obviously that was not something they wanted yeah that's really cool so I mean we're kind of carrying the flag for the south which we've sort of known but it is cool to know that even those other other southern clubs who may you know when we play against them on you know when they get promoted like a Benevent or a Salernitana mm-hmm. may may become rivals in a way or it might be might be viewed as a rivalry in the media it's cool to know that ultimately they would probably back napoli yeah like joe i think one big distinction to make is one thing is like sporting rivalry like on the field in the game like of course a Salernitana fan is going to support Salernitana over over napoli but if napoli are playing in the champions league and we draw Juventus, for example. We draw Inter. We can't draw Juventus because they're out. But say we draw Inter in the in the quarterfinals because we both get through. Most Salernitana fans will be supporting Napoli, and, and that's the case in in the lower sides of the the country in general. Like there is a real like division because in terms also of like passion, it's very different. The fans in the north are very passionate as well, but they are. Yeah, you'll see guys like rock up with like a blazer and a shirt in the Milan derbies and stuff like that. In Naples, you either go in home colors or you go in all black with with North Face or or your CP company because you're part of the ultras groups. You know, it is a a very informal but very like cohesive and 
it's a very decided unit, the fan base in Naples and the fan bases in, in the South in general. They go to support the team. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in the Curva to watch the game, Joe, but, you know, the majority of the fans in the Curva don't actually watch the game. They're turned, their backs are turned because they're focused on singing and, like, making sure that their voice can be heard as much as possible. So especially the leaders, of the, the Capultra, they'll be turned making sure that everyone's aggregated and making as much noise as possible. And they're jumping and they're like lighting flares. So it's a lot more about just demonstrating support than it is about the eventual result. And that's why you know, we have one of our biggest chances, al di là risultato. Like it doesn't matter, win, lose or draw, we're there to like show our love and our passion for our club. And that's very rare in general in football. Like most people will go to watch a football game for the show. Especially, you know, I live in I live in London primarily, and oh my god, like how much of a spectacle they make it. It reminds me of the NBA, like you know, at least in the NBA, they're honest about it. Like every quarter, there's like three cheerleader shows. In the UK, they still try and like push this agenda of being like really core, like passionate football fans. But there's three screens in every stadium that are showing like adverts, and there's songs all the time. That's fair enough. Like, you know, I understand you're trying to make the experience as, as pleasant as possible for people. But, you know, in terms of singing and chanting, there are very few pockets in the stadium. Whereas in, in Naples, like wherever you sit, you will be forced to sing. Otherwise, just watch it at home. <laughs> the good thing is now, I mean, as much as everyone might be there just to show their support, now we're winning as well, which is fantastic. And, and I'm sure everyone's happy yeah. about that. So. Yeah. That will do for part one. In part two, we'll talk about one of those wins, which was against Empoli on Tuesday. Welcome to part two of the Fortunopoli podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Betstamp. With the Betstamp app, you can compare betting lines across multiple different sports books in your region, which is the only way to get an edge in online sports betting. You can also buy and sell picks from verified accounts, and best of all, the app is free. There are no fees, no royalties, and no commissions. Just download the BetStamp app and be sure to use referral code NAPOLI to your account. All right, so let's talk about the match against Empoli on Tuesday. As I'm sure everyone's already aware, Napoli won 2-0 on goals from Chucky Lozano and Piotr Zielinski. Once again... Empoli proved to be a more difficult opponent than we might have expected them to be. So let's start there. It was the second consecutive match where we've gotten all three points, which is ultimately all that matters, but we didn't play as well as we have in previous matches. We certainly didn't dominate these two matches. I guess the Empoli match we did in terms of ball possession, but it didn't feel like the type of dominant match that we've become almost accustomed to. Now, two matches isn't a trend. So, Lorenzo, let me ask you, is it premature to be maybe a little bit concerned about the way we played against Atalanta and Empoli? So I think more than concerned, I think we should actually be like very happy with how we played for one reason in particular, that you flash back over every single year up to this year, we play that Empoli game. We, you know, just, just let's rewind to last year. Empoli took six points away from us last season. It's incredible. Like it's mesmerizing that a team that finished on 38 points or, or 42 points, I think, took six points away from a team who technically should be competing for the Scudetto, right? It's crazy. And one thing that I fundamentally I still haven't, as a very like skeptical and scaramantic person, I haven't yet got round to is the fact that we are 
it, it seems now at least the favorite for the Scudetto, especially because of Milan's slip up, right? But winning that game and winning the Atalanta game just gave me a lot more confidence that this year it seems like they just have blood in their eyes, Joe. Like it looks like like Atsima that we always talk about in, in Naples, that our ability to just grind out. You know, Joe, we're a precarious city. Like we live in the shadow of Vesuvius, right? Like we know that one day Vesuvius could just wake up, explode and kill us all, right? So we live our day on a day-by-day basis. Just we make sure that, you know, the next day is, is a happy day. And that fear that we always have leads us to then like be quite, cautious with optimism like at all times and and i think this year in particular we were all very skeptical because the media had made us skeptical like i wasn't skeptical about cavalascalia because from the only few like clips that i'd seen of him and from the one game that i actually watched him play because i somehow randomly found myself watching the spain v georgia game a few years ago i saw that he was like the incredible talent. I didn't expect him to have the impact that he had, that he's had. Obviously, no one did. And anyone who, you know, now every single newspaper is saying that every other club in Italy was linked to him and they passed on him and it was a mistake and all this nonsense is is absolute nonsense. And Napoli Scouting Network is one of the best in the world. And yeah, we've proven it time and time again. We're we're the only club in the top eight that is auto funded and profitable year on year since we came back into Serie A. Like that stat alone, when you consider that Inter makes 150 million euro loss every year and has to basically sell players just to meet interest payments is you know, incredible. But in terms of whether or not we need to be concerned, I'd say the one thing we need to be concerned about is if we are very one-sided and can only play that sterile possession that was very much the case with Sadri, right? Like, you know, with Sadri, we were definitely the most fun club to watch, perhaps even in Europe, but we were only ever able to play in that one way. Whereas, you know, here we play on the counter-attack. We're able to grind out results that seem like very unacceptable to the mass media. Like the fact that the fact that I'm reading headlines on Italian newspapers that say that we got un rigorino, like a, a penalty that was just like, you know, a, a nothing penalty. I'd dare put Lautaro Martinez's video up for his penalty against Fiorentina with our one from Endombele. And I dare like line up all of the referees in Serie A and ask them to explain why one is a penalty and one isn't. You know, I, I think it's nonsense. The only thing we have to worry about, Joe, is if we ever go into games underestimating the opponent. I think, fortunately, this year, it seems like Spalletti has learned his lesson from last year. And even with the turnover... He's having people play knowing that each opponent has their problem. Whether we play Liverpool or we play Lecce, and we actually, to be fair, we, we struggled with Lecce because a little bit we did underestimate them. But every team that we play, we analyse them and we exploit their weak spots. The second goal that we scored, that's not a, a banal something that's just happened that Lozano manages to wrong foot Henderson. Lozano was put on in the second half when Politano had tired Henderson out and Politano was playing on his foot and switching in so that when Lozano was eventually actually playing on his normal foot, he'd confuse Henderson. And when he loses his footing and Lozano puts the cross in, that's literally Spalletti's masterpiece coming to fruition. That's, you know, that's not something you'd pick up on if 
you weren't a weirdo like me who like really likes stats and like looks into these things. But Spalletti's analysis technically is probably top in, in Serie A. Yeah, and he's been very outspoken about not underestimating opponents. For me, I was almost more concerned about Ampoli and and some of these lower teams because we, even if it's not because we're underestimating them, it's because their style of sitting back and defending in a low block is a lot more difficult for us than when we play against some of the bigger clubs who are a bit more expansive, which means there's more space and that's what we thrive on. I think it's also important to recognize a couple of things. One, obviously, we're a different team without Kvaraskhelia in the lineup because he's such a creative player. We don't have a great backup left winger. I mean, it's hard to complain about that, though, because we have such a deep squad anyways. So, I mean, most teams around the league, they're going to have star players out. But we've managed, at least because we haven't had multiple big chunks of injuries altogether mm. like we've had in the last couple of seasons, you know, we've had injuries to key players, but so far, at least, it's been one at a time. We lost Osman for a couple of games. We played through that. We lost Angisa for a couple of games. We played through that. Now we've had Rachmani out for a while, and we're playing through that. So I think that's that's part of it, at least in terms of creativity, because he's the type of player that in a match like this, where you have an Empoli team who's defending very well, they're playing, they're very organized, they're committing a lot of sort of niggling fouls to just kind of break up our rhythm, it's useful to have a creative player that can take on a defender 1v1 and dribble past him and, and create a little bit of chaos. The other thing I keep mentioning on the show is that we've played a lot of games in a very short amount of time. And I know that's the same thing for the other big clubs who are playing in Champions League or Europa League or Conference League, but they're also dropping more points than we have, at least so far. But when you run into a team like Empoli, who's playing once a week, you know, fine, they, they played at the weekend, but... For the most part, they've only played one game a week throughout this season. The other thing I was going to say is that, you know, Ndombele, he's improving, but I think he might have been a little bit like, and his dribbling is incredible. Like we've seen him make some, some fantastic dribbles over the last few matches, but at the same time, I feel like he slows the game down a little bit. And, and to your point, sometimes that's okay because then you bring on a guy like Zielinski and Lozano off the bench and you put them against tired opponents and, and they have a, a huge advantage in terms of their pace. But with Zielinski on, he plays a lot quicker. He passes the ball and you know gets rid of it and keeps moving. So I think I think that could make a big difference. Thankfully, we have a very dynamic player like Victor Osimen who can single-handedly change the outcome of a match. Lorenzo, prior to Osimen winning that penalty. Were you worried that this match might end in a scoreless draw? Like, would it be another one of these dropped points against Empoli? Or did you have that confidence, like, as you mentioned, with Spalletti's sort of statistical analysis that he knew the right moment to make those changes? Do you know what, Joe? I think episodes ultimately win you games, right? And the the, the penalty episode meant that Empoli had to try at least and, and come out of their box you know but we we did literally play against a parked bus whilst they did it in a, a much more fascinating way to watch than Mourinho and his Roma team when we beat them ultimately like Zanetti is actually a really good coach I, I, I really enjoy watching his Empoli team because they're quite tactically adept especially the the fullbacks they play in the same way that really they've been playing throughout the course of their most recent come up to Serie A and they're playing in a very similar way to which Di Lorenzo used to play when when he first joined Napoli which is they overlap 
on the winger and then the winger takes their position. So often they find themselves in a surplus on the other defenders. Obviously, with Napoli, it's difficult to do that because we have very quick fullbacks and we also have wingers who are told by Spalletti to backtrack as soon as the ball like comes past our half. But one thing that's really important, Joe, and, and this is something that perhaps sometimes goes lost when especially you're in a period of euphoria and you know everything is going your way. We have to like open our eyes and look at the rest of the league and see that Inter have lost five games already. Milan struggled in an incredible way to get a result last week and then could not break down Cremonese, who, to be fair, proved a tough opponent for us as well, but we ultimately ended up winning 4-1, right? The strength of our team is not just symbolized by our own results, but it's by the results that other teams are getting around us against teams that, Cremonese, there is no reason why they should be taking points away from Milan, but Serie A is by no means the strongest league in the world, and it makes me laugh when people say, oh, you know, we could compete with the Premier League and we can compete with, you know, even people who say we can compete with La Liga is stupid. Yeah, I mean, technically we can because over the sort of 20 teams, we probably do balance out because we have maybe eight teams that are semi-decent and they only have four slash six maybe. But, Joe, let's be honest, Ndombele and... The bulk of the substitutes that we have are a luxury for this Napoli team. We've never had a player like Ndombele to be a substitute. You know, let's remember that we used to have Boyacino, right? Like we we had Chigarini, who when when Chigarini signed for Napoli, he was like an incredible signing. We had Grassi. We've had like, you know, Berami was like a, a legend for Napoli fans, just for how hard working he was. Gargano, he had like two left feet. But just because he was like really hardworking, we used to like absolutely venerate him. And, you know, to have a player like Ndombele with the experience that he's accrued with Spurs and, and Leon and just in general, the pedigree of that type of player, I completely agree with you. He was probably not the best choice. And I think Spalletti realized towards the latter end of the game that Raspadori was probably not the best choice either, that perhaps... Elmas, again, would have been a better option because Elmas complements Politano especially really well because Elmas does all of the backtracking, so it throws all of the weight over to the other wing. And once he beats his first man, he automatically also beats his second man because he's coming into the ball. And it it frees up Anguissa to make runs that, unfortunately, he wasn't being able to make because Ndombele was hog not hogging the ball, but he was definitely focusing on bringing the ball forward himself. So, ultimately... Joe, we're not a team who is supposed to have 22 starters. We just don't have the financial firepower to do so, to afford to do so. But the fact that we can change Mario Rui and Oliveira and nothing changes, the fact that we can change Ndombele and Zielinski, Anguissa, and even to a certain extent, the fact that we don't necessarily need Kvaratskhelia to pull a result out of the bag, you know, Look at how dependent Milan are on Leal. People say Leal is better than Quara, and I haven't expressed my opinion yet because the sample size is too small. But I watch Quaraskelia's impact on games, and I watch 
Leal's impact on games. I just think Karashkelia, if Karashkelia was called Karashkelison and he was Brazilian, it would have been a completely different story. You know, like there is just no sort of notion by which I think they're even on the same parallel. He is a player who, unfortunately, we will not spend too much time with our club. Like he is destined to play for a very big team and he is destined to change games. It's like he has a switch because yeah, sometimes he goes very quiet and then all of a sudden like someone turns the switch on and he will just go and the defences in Italy are not strong enough to stop him. So we're, we're very lucky that he's coming back for Udinese. So I'm sure when we talk about that, we'll go into more detail. But yeah, I just think Napoli need to be very grateful for how Spalletti has managed to make everyone feel as if they're a starter. You know, he, he always pushes back whenever they're in their press conferences about who's starting and who's who's the reserve. And he's always like, I don't have reserves. I have 60-minute starters and then I have 30-minute starters because he does literally divide the game into two, sometimes three different portions. And, you know, it's tough for Cholito to, to like, never play, right? But then if you gear him up in the right way and then when you bring him on, he's scoring goals, you know, for fun. Does it really matter how many minutes he plays if you actually make him feel like a starter? I think that's the real important dynamic that Spalletti has absolutely nailed this year. The other thing we have to take into consideration as well is that we're playing very often. So sometimes you may have to put in a player who may not be your first choice player, even to your point that he doesn't necessarily have first choice players, but he's also managing the workload. And I've been very hesitant to even make this point because I know I'm going to jinx it. But I think that depth that you've talked about is a lot of the reason why we've suffered fewer injuries this season than we have in the last couple because we were more dependent on the same players in the previous seasons. And now we have two starting left backs. We have two starting right wingers. As Ndombele is improving, he's become the fourth midfielder that can rotate in for either Zielinski or Angisa. So yeah, there's definitely more options there. You talked about Empoli's structure. I was looking at the official match report that the league produces, and one of the graphics they include in there is the average position of each player on the pitch, both in possession and in non-possession and in each half. And it's amazing how well they held their 4-3-1-2 structure, especially in the first half when they were holding us off. It, It got a little bit thrown off in the second half, probably when they had to score after we scored, and then certainly after they they got the red card and they had to change their structure a little bit. So I think we do also have to give Empoli credit for how how well they defended, at least. I think we also helped them a little bit in that regard because I thought we were a little bit predictable. One thing with OC men is that when he's on, you know that we're going to play the ball long and we're going to try to cross the ball from the wings, which is a little bit predictable. I mean, we even heard Spalletti pretty loud and clear on, on the broadcast, Telan Gisa, OC, OC behind, (laughs) which which was a cool little moment in itself. And then our crossing, like Politano seemed a little bit reluctant to cross the ball. Mario Rui's crosses were not the greatest in the first half. And then, you know, we fixed that in the second half. Do you know what it is, Joe? I think the problem is that we are not fundamentally for our structure, a crossing team. Crossing is very much a new element that Spalletti has introduced over the course of the last... 12, I, I, yeah, we did cross in his first year last year, but it was one outlet and one outlet only. It was to Aussie men and it was very much when we were trying to get a goal when it was like a 
a dead game. Whereas now we are playing crosses to break lines. Like often Mario Rui will cross pretty far from the actual touchline, which is not necessarily common for, for fullbacks because he is looking to allow for the second ball, which often comes from you know, the defender winning the header with Osiman to fall to the right player. So he will cross earlier, try and get the defender to obviously not win the header and get the ball onto Osiman. Or, or actually, the best the best example of this was when he crossed the ball for Simeone against Milan, because that cross came from literally almost the middle of the park, and it came not with the objective that Simeone scores the goal of the season, but that the ball comes through and he's got Angisa and Zielinski literally on the edge of the box, ready to shoot. Obviously, Simeone scores an unbelievable goal and, and it all looks like it's planned with a remote control. But the real objective is for the first ball to fall to our midfielders because of how quickly the cross is taken. And I think that's another incredible weapon that bar maybe the top, top teams, and I'm talking maybe Pep's City team, actually you know, Liverpool with Klopp, with Trent, very few teams have mastered the ability to use cross in a way that is not just like a pounding the box, like just, you know, sending very tall people and hoping that they get their head on it. Even, you know, some of the some of the top Champions League teams, they don't use crosses efficiently. And actually, there's been a couple of videos from a couple of YouTube channels that I watch saying, is crossing going out of fashion? Like, because of possession-based football, do you really need the ball to be in the air? Like, can you not just like break lines with ball on the ground? But yes, Palacios has been phenomenal with that. And actually, Joe, I, I don't know if you picked up on this, but Kim bridges the gap between the defense and the midfield very efficiently when we're attacking quite high up because he pushes up. And you know, Juan Jesus usually remains behind him to sort of hold the line. And, and usually either Oliver or Mario Rui, depending on who's pushing, will come with him. But Kim's pressure means that even their midfielders drop back and the striker drops back to create more of like a a hub for the defending team. And actually that causes more confusion because they don't know who's supposed to be marking who. When there's an extra defender in the box, it's actually worse for the defending team because they could be going for a ball that's actually already assigned to another defender. And I think that's, again, something that Spalletti has worked on. And, and you can just see that you know, even the dead ball situations, that goal against Atalanta on Saturday, that's not just like a a beast that has gone into the sky. That's a ball that's been put there on purpose because they know that Scalvini has no chance of coming up against Osimhen on that type of header. Yeah, and also how they set that up with the short corner and dribbling yeah. towards the air. I mean, they also they caught Atalanta a little bit off guard, but to your point, that's premeditated, it's planned. To your earlier point about the second ball, there's sort of a plan A and a plan B, right? What's our, our initial plan and how do we react when something else happens? We're almost out of time already, so we're going to go a bit quickly, but I want to talk about two players in particular. One is Victor Osimen. For me, he was probably our best player on the whole because even when things were not going our way in the first half, he was still hustling. He was vibrant. He was getting to balls and putting pressure. And to me, one of the things that impresses me the most about Victor, even though he's scoring all these goals, is when he closes down a defender and we win possession just because that defender is forced to get rid of the ball quickly and they either play it straight out to touch or they play it long and give it right back to us. But 
he is also contributing, making very important contributions in all these matches. Like if you look at the matches he's played since he returned from his injury, he's literally made a very, very important contribution in each one. So he scored the game winner against Bologna to bail out Alex Medet. He scored that incredible winner against Roma with, you know, that ridiculous strike from a tight angle after fending off Chris Smalling. He scored three of the four goals against Sassuolo, which was his first ever hat trick in club football. The first was the game winner in that match as well. He scored the equalizer against Atalanta on that goal we just talked about immediately after he conceded the penalty kick. And then he made another brilliant play to set up the winner. And then in this match, he wins the penalty on what leads to the eventual game winner. Like, I know we all have high expectations for Osiman and we know how great he is, but I feel like he's even outperforming those expectations now. Joe, you know, you mentioned almost everything. The one thing that perhaps escaped you is actually how much of a distraction he was to Empoli's centre-back, which basically allowed for him to be doubled because obviously the ball was potentially meant for him and Zielinski to just come into the area and score that goal. And very few attackers, I think maybe only Giroud in Serie A and actually Lukaku have that much of a marking imposed on them from other teams and as much as i i rate Giroud and, and lukaku i think the way he gets away from defenders and the goal that he set up last week is proof of it with atlanta is something that's not really like normal and again we we have a couple of players who in reality are just a couple of levels above our league and, you know, there's talk that Leao might go to Chelsea for $120 million. If that is the case, it, it, great, because that sets a precedent. We should not expect to sell Osimhen for any less than $150 million. Because he is a player that, while scoring goals, in a team like Manchester City, Osimhen would score very few goals less than Haaland. Genuinely, he, he, I'd struggle to see how he scores less goals than Haaland. And... That is the same for teams like Barcelona. That you know, teams that only need a finalizer, he will score thirty goals a season. In teams like us, where he needs to contribute to just more than putting the goal in the back of the net, because yeah, fundamentally, there are pieces of our pie which are not of his level, right? And they're not of Carrasquilla's level, and that's not a problem because the Serie A is not necessarily the highest league either, but. He makes the difference. Like in Italian, we say "fala differenza." He makes the difference just with the pace that he's he he's able to get to that ball one tenth of a second quicker than the defender to cause the penalty, and that's not something that is normal. Like technically, that defender should comfortably get to that ball and be able to sweep it away or shoulder him. He is so quick that his whole body is in front of him by the time that the defender gets to it basically rendering him redundant. Like, there is no reason for the defender to do anything bar commit the foul there. Because then if he gets the ball, he turns. He's so quick with his turning, and he has two players to pass to to have a free shot. Yeah, Osman is he's out of this world. And when when I was listening to all this nonsense from our fans as well about, uh, you know, like, Simeone and, and Raspadori, like, they've already replaced him, like, we should have cashed in, all these things. Simeone and Raspadori are really good players. And, and the reason if we win the league this year that we will win the league is because we have players of that level that can come onto the pitch. But Osimhen starts for every single club in Serie A and he starts for 
every club in the world bar three or four. Like, I don't think he starts ahead of Haaland. I don't think he starts ahead of Benzema. And I think he'd struggle to start ahead of Lewandowski. But there's very few other clubs that, yeah, I think Chelsea would would pay through the nose to take Ossiman and Manchester United would do the same. Yeah, and I think he's pretty quickly quieted <laughs> all of those talks about starting Simeone or Rastabodi. Yeah. Last player I want to get your thoughts on quickly, and you've kind of touched on it already a little bit, is Chucky Lozano, who made a, a pretty big impact off the bench. He just barely converted the penalty, but he still scored it. He drew the second yellow card on Sebastiano Luperto, and then he assisted on the Zielinski goal, even if it was, like you said, possibly intended for Osiman. Yeah. I mean, he made a great little shimmy, if you could call it that, to lose Parisi and open up the space for that cross. What did you think of Lozano's performance off the bench? Lozano is is another one of the factors that demonstrates how different the fan bases are because the Napoli fans, the fans in Naples and the ones that go to the stadium are not the biggest fans of Lozano because he was bought for a lot of money for for a Napoli player. It's not a lot of money like in today's market, but for a Napoli, I think he was the most expensive player of our history before Osimhen. So the expectations were incredibly high, and also he had a very good season the first season with Gattuso. So I like, expected him to really kick on, but he's often criticised because people say that he's a bit sterile, like he you know he he dribbles too much and then you know, he doesn't have end product. What I really like about Lozano, and this is something that I think actually fans here and like fans or definitely in Mexico really appreciate about him, is that he sacrifices himself so much. Like he will literally run solely with the aim of tiring the defender out. Like he won't try and like do much more than that because he knows that often his responsibility is that of then feeding the ball into the box, right? But the way he got past that defender is not by luck. Like, as I said, Henderson did not lose his feet because he slipped. Henderson lost his feet because Lozano was playing to his strength that Spalletti had instructed him to of dropping the shoulder so that he thought he was going onto his right foot and then coming back in, turning again, and then crossing with his right foot. So I think Lozano is one of those players that because he's not got yeah, a string of fixtures where he's like contributed to regularly. He's not had the same acclaim as Raspadori or Simeone or obviously Quarashgelia as a as a substitute. But I actually think, again, we're incredibly lucky to now have, you know, what teams in Serie A have players of the caliber of Politano and Simeone that alternate? Uh, sorry, Politano and Lozano would start for. Yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to think which teams in Serie A they don't start for, right? Like, and. <laughs> Yeah, we have the luxury of alternating them. So I'm uber positive about this Napoli squad, about the management. And I think the only thing we have to be worried about, and I I really doubt that's going to be the case now because of how mature the, the team has become like very quickly. The only thing we have to be wary of is going back into it after the World Cup with that presumption that because we're relatively far ahead, that you know we're we're walking the league, but I doubt that that's going to occur. And we've got a load of hungry players as well. Like I think a lot of players want to win. Osimhen wants to win. Like you know, his passion at the end of every game. Like he's the first one under Le Curve, uh, whether it be traveling or or at home. And and you know his passion, the the will that he has to win. I think it's it's unmatched. And yeah, I, I'm really confident. I, well, not confident. I'm I'm really hopeful. I don't want to say that I'm confident because that's bad. Understandable. And I think Kvaras Helia has that same 
added to it. I saw an interview with someone from his entourage. It might have been his family or his friends. I, I don't know, or an agent. But even even that person said that, you know, with all these rumors that he may leave already, that no, no, he wants to stay and he wants to win something important. And, and he gives off that vibe of just even playing for Georgia. Like you look at, at how that country has elevated on the international stage and things like the Nations League. It's been really, really impressive. We're basically out of time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going <laughs> to record a separate sort of mini pod to preview the Udinese <laughs> match. Um, no, 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 that's okay. It's, I'm, I'd rather it be this way because... I mean, I'm glad we we spoke about your story mostly because that's that's mm. the most important part of these things. And we'll definitely have to bring you back on because you've got some great yeah. insights and it was an absolute pleasure to chat with you. I just want to quickly point out that with this win over Empoli and with Milan's draw to Cremonese, we've now expanded our lead to eight points. On top of that, on Wednesday, Atalanta lost 2-1 to Lecce and Roma drew Sassuolo 1-1, so they both fell a little bit further behind. Inter fell behind to Bologna before scoring six goals to win 6-1, so they remained 11 points back of us. And Lazio and Juve both play on Thursday, so we don't know the results of those matches yet, but even if they both won, Lazio would join Milan eight points behind us and Juve would remain 10 points back of us. That was our 10th consecutive win in Serie A, and we're now undefeated in 14 matches on the season. Lorenzo, before I wrap it up, any final thoughts? Uh, just hearing you say that was our 10th consecutive win, believe me, as someone who has seen us not have these, these types of results and as someone who just dreams of what, what may be, I, you know, let's all remain with our feet firmly planted on the ground, but let's be conscious of what is happening, how we are performing and the greatness of this team's character and, and devotion. Let's not criticize results that occur when they're not like the free scoring, like five nil wins. Let's actually appreciate that we can win in so many different ways. And, you know, let's really enjoy the ride because I think it's going to be a good one this year. Yeah, that's really well said. I think we got to just live match to match. I'm still not willing to admit what the odds books or the, the, the books tell us in terms of who are the odds on favorites. I, I just want to take it one game at a time. Enjoy every result that we get. Enjoy however far we go in the Champions League, which is a whole other just pleasure yeah. this year. Um, and then see what happens when it's all said and done. Lorenzo, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Joe, thank you. I, I look forward to coming back on too. Yeah, absolutely. You can find Lorenzo on Instagram if you want to follow him at Loris Adamo. That is L-O-R-I-S Adamo. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5. And you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Forza Napoli Pod. As I said, I'll be back very soon with a mini pod to preview the Udinese match. And then we'll be back next week to review the match against, against Udinese <laughs> after the preview. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre.
Podcast Network.